Greetings and welcome to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mullet. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, you can visit our website at logicalbelief.org. You can watch these podcasts on YouTube. Uh, you can search for and subscribe to our channel there. Uh, you can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Logical Belief. Um, our iTunes feed was just approved uh, just a few days ago, so we are up and running on iTunes. <clears throat> you can also reach us, uh, find us on your favorite Android device. Uh, if you just open up your podcast application and just uh, search for Logical Belief Ministries or Logical Belief, you should be able to find us. Uh, both the audio and video can be found at our website. Um, there on the top menu of the website to the far right, you'll just see where it says podcast. Just click on that. And all the videos and audio links to our podcast shows um, are on that page. Um, if you want to send me a word of encouragement, or if you just have a question or comment uh, or anything that uh, you want to send me uh, that you want to have answered on air, uh, you just can drop me an email at jason at logicalbelief.org. Um, also, just be aware by sending me an email, uh, you are giving me permission to read it on the air. So, um, in today's broadcast, as promised in the previous episode, um, we will be um, covering the uh, Dr. Greg Bonson and Gordon Stein debate uh, on this show. In the previous show, we uh, we went over presuppositional apologetics, uh, kind of a um, fifty thousand foot view, uh, a good uh, overview of the apologetic methodology, its biblical uh, grounding, and uh, so forth. Uh, so if uh, some of you are joining us um, on this episode and have not seen the previous one, and you don't have much familiarity with presuppositional apologetics, I would encourage you to watch that show um, actually before uh, you jump in here and um, listen to uh, this debate and uh, my comments on it. So um, I would encourage you to do that. Um, also, we just um, posted a new article on our website uh, called, Is Faith a Gift uh, from God? And um, so I'd encourage you, if you have time, to go ahead and read that article. Um, so um, as promised, uh, without uh, further ado, we will just go ahead and jump into the debate. Uh, the debate is uh, took place um, at UC uh, University of California, Irvine, I believe, uh, back in the early 90s, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so the first uh, the first uh, person uh, making their opening statement uh, is going to be Dr. Greg Bonson. Um, the thesis of the debate um, is uh, is the question: Does God um, exist? And um, so, Dr. Greg Bonson, the Christian, the presuppositionalist, will start off uh, the show, and uh, Dr. Gordon Stein, the atheist, uh, will make the second opening uh, comments. So, um, as we go through this, I don't have any really prepared comments. Um, for this, so I will just uh, be stopping the audio and uh, making comments uh, about it, uh, making some points of clarification and just pointing out some things as we go through this debate. And hopefully this will be a learning experience uh, for you and helpful to those of you out there that are especially getting into presuppositionalism. Um, 
and uh, have have not maybe heard of it before or just want to know more about it, hopefully this debate and uh, my comments on it will be helpful to you and will um, help you to understand what is going on here. So without um, further ado, let's just go ahead and jump right into it. I've got the uh, audio queued up here, so we'll just kick it right off. Here we go. Thank you, David. I want to begin this evening with three opening and introductory remarks about the nature of the debate itself. First of all, it's necessary at the outset of our debate to define our terms. That's always the case. And in particular here, I should make it clear what I mean when I use the term God. I want to specify that I'm arguing particularly in favor of Christian theism and for it as a unit or system of thought and not for anything like theism in general. And there are reasons for that, three. Uh, the various conceptions... I want to jump right in here right at the beginning, and this is one thing I want to point out uh, about uh, the presuppositional apologetic, uh, which is one of the reasons that <clears throat> I do believe that it is um, uh, biblical, in is that um, it is an actually an argument for the God of the Bible, the triune God of the Bible. Um, and unlike other apologetic methodologies, classical apologetics or evidential especially, um, argue to the position of, of a general theistic uh, point of view uh, that there is uh, you know, definitely a creator God who is uh, uh, personal in nature. Uh, and that's about all they can get to uh, from an evidential perspective. However, the presuppositional position, which is why... Um, you know, if we believe the Bible, that all men know God exists, and they know that the triune God of the Bible exists, um, <clears throat> I want to use an apologetic method that um, is is an argument for that. Because um, uh, I'm not arguing for the God of Islam um, or Mormonism uh, or Jehovah's Witnesses even for that matter. Um, I'm arguing for the triune God of the Bible. And uh, so that is one of the powers of the presuppositional apologetic is that uh, it doesn't abandon the authority of the word of God. We stand on the word of God as our presupposition. And in doing so, we actually are making arguments for the um, the God of the Bible. Um, another thing that I, and I'll probably may at some point do an additional uh, episode on this topic is is does presuppositionalism, um, do we have to assume in presuppositionalism the triune nature of God? And um, also, do we have to assume things like his aseity, um, his non-contingency, um, his immutability, uh, which are all attributes the, the Bible speaks of, but are these necessary preconditions for the human experience and even the metaphysical nature of um, of human beings created in the image of God. So I believe that is the case, uh, and I want to develop that more in the future. So, um, so before I keep running down this rabbit trail, let's uh, let's just get back to uh, Greg Bonson in the debate here. Of deity found in the world religions are in most cases logically incompatible leaving no unambiguous sense to general theism, whatever that might be. 
Secondly, I have not found the non-Christian religions to be philosophically defensible, each of them being internally incoherent or undermining human reason and experience. And thirdly, since I am, by the grace of God, a Christian, I cannot from the heart adequately defend those religious faiths with, with which I disagree. My commitment is to the triune God and Christian worldview based on God's revelation in the Old and New Testaments. So first, then, I'm defending Christian theism. Secondly, I want to observe, and we should indicate just what it is and is not at issue in the debate on the basis of which we hope you'll consider the debate. It must be made clear that we are debating about philosophical systems, not the people who adhere to or profess them. Our concern is with the objective merits of the case which can be made for atheism or Christian theism, not related subjective or personal matters. And again, I have three reasons for illustrations of this. And I just want to jump in here and confirm what Bonson is saying here. <clears throat> Often you'll find um, atheists um, say that uh, religion, for example, is uh, the cause and the root of a, of a lot of evil in this world. Um, or you'll even hear Christians argue and say that, uh, you know, atheistic regimes, uh, communist-type regimes like, you know, Stalin and Pol Pot and uh, Chairman Mao and and uh, so forth are, are uh, atheistic, you know, um, in their... Uh, uh, their atheistic regimes and that they're guilty of uh, millions of, of deaths in the 20th century. The 20th century is, is the bloodiest uh, century in human history. And um, much of that was, was done uh, from an atheistic worldview perspective. Um, but as Bonson is pointing out here, these sorts of experiences uh, do not do not necessarily uh, determine the truthfulness of the system being examined, and that's often uh, you'll you'll hear atheists uh, bring up like the Spanish Inquisition, the Crusades, um, and things of that nature. And um, obviously, those were people that would have claimed uh, the Christian worldview. Uh, but you know, my argument would be is that uh, they were not really Christians, and um, and that uh, uh, that they were just uh, human beings using uh, their Christianity sometimes as an excuse for the wickedness that they do, but they were being inconsistent with God's revelation in Jesus Christ. Um, now, you know, obviously the atheists could say, well, you know, um, they, they weren't really atheists, <laughs> the ones that were uh, murderous, but, uh, you know, we could get into that debate. That's another debate. But uh, this here uh, debate is actually on, you know, does God exist? And so um, uh, both Christians and theists uh, need to stay on the topic of is the system under examination philosophically and rationally consistent and viable? The personalities of those individuals who adhere to different systems of thought are not really relevant to the truth or falsity of the claims made by those systems. Atheists and Christians can equally be found emotional, unlearned, intolerant, or rude in their approaches. Uh, secondly, subjective claims made about the experience of inner satisfaction or peace, claims that are made interestingly by both Christians and atheists in their literature. 
and promotional claims made about the superiority of Christianity or atheism. For instance, some atheist literature suggests that greater mental health comes through the independence of the atheist outlook. These sorts of things are always subject to conflicting interpretations and explanations being, I think, more autobiographical rather than telling us anything for sure about the truth of the system under consideration. Uh, thirdly, the issue is not whether atheists or professing Christians have ever done anything undesirable or morally unacceptable. One need only think respectively of the atheist involvement in the reign of terror in the French Revolution and the professing Christian involvement in the Spanish Inquisition. Now, the question is not whether adherents of these systems have uh, lived spotless lives, but whether atheism or Christian theism as philosophical systems are objectively true. And so I'll be defending Christian theism, and I'll be defending it as a philosophical system. And my last introductory remark is simply to the effect that I want to concede to my opponent all issues pertaining to the control of ovarian maturation in Japanese quail. Okay. The subject of his doctoral dissertation in 1974 at Ohio State. <laughs> Dr. Stein is a man of intelligence. And that the thing that uh, Bonson is uh, rather humorously pointing out here is that um, Stein, uh, from an educational perspective, um, is, is really not equipped and prepared for this debate. And, and you will actually see that. Uh, and, and I think for several reasons. I'm not, I'm not saying that those that um, haven't been uh, trained in philosophy and uh, formally trained uh, cannot grasp these concepts. But Stein, I don't think, has really, um, as, as you'll be able to tell, has not spent adequate uh, time actually engage. Uh, because even atheists in the past, you take Hume. And, and other atheists in the past have recognized the philosophical problems, uh, or, or at least some of them, with uh, the atheistic, uh, naturalistic worldview and do recognize some of the issues. Uh, Stein here, on the other hand, uh, seems to be rather oblivious of them. Um, and so Bonson's uh, point here is that um, he's, he's not specifically trained um, in this, and and you know what what is the the reason basically for uh for for Stein's basically crusade um the last while on um and for atheism uh, and so uh that's uh that's that's the point he's trying to make here and uh he does so effectively that's not in question in this debate I would not pretend to hold my own in a discussion with him of the empirical details of his narrow domain of specialized natural science. However, our subject tonight is really much different, calling for intelligent reflection upon issues which are philosophical or theological in character. For some reason, Dr. Stein has, over the last decade, left his field of expertise and given his life to a campaign for atheism. Whatever his perception of the reason for that, I do not believe that it is because of any genuinely cogent philosophical case which might be made for atheism as a worldview. And it's to this subject which I now turn for tonight's debate. My opening case for the existence of God will cover three areas of thought. They are the nature of evidence, the presuppositional conflict of worldviews, 
And finally, the transcendental argument for God's existence. First of all, the nature of evidence. How should the difference of opinion between the theist and the atheist be rationally resolved? What Dr. Stein has written indicates that he, like many atheists, has not reflected adequately on this question. He writes, and I quote, The question of the existence of God is a factual question and should be answered in the same way as any other factual question. This is a common mistake, um, and, and probably one of the most common mistakes that you see atheists make, is they'll, they will go up to the Christian theist, and they will demand that he give them and provide for them empirical scientific evidence for God. And now, you know, the, the, the Christian, you know, will will be like, well, you know, he, he can give evidence for God. I mean, you have DNA, you have information science, you have um, just the irreducible complexity of life. Um, there's, there's many different evidences. But the atheist will simply reject them because of his naturalistic presuppositions. But what he's demanding is that we provide for him um, the, the he's, he's ignoring the metaphysical nature and makeup of God. God is transcendent. He is not a part of his creation. He is outside of his creation. He transcends it. And so therefore, I, I can't perform an empirical scientific experiment. I can't put God into a test tube. If I could, he wouldn't be God. And but that's that's what they they make a category error. They reduce God to the category um, of of something within creation itself. When as the creator, he would by necessity not be a part of his creation. But they demand that we provide within creation proof and evidence of God. Now. You know, is Jesus Christ himself, the incarnate Son of God, you know, is he is he uh, evidence within creation of God? Well, absolutely. Um, but we will all view Jesus Christ based upon our presuppositions. And so the atheist will regiment his against uh, that sort of evidence. But... Um, but they make this category error, and they reduce the question of God down to um, the same way we would question on the um, atomic makeup of a hydrogen you know, atom. Um, God cannot be reduced to that sort of a question, but that's the uh, mistake that they make. End of quote. The assumption that all existence claims are questions about matters of fact, the assumption that these are all answered in the very same way, is not merely oversimplified and misleading. It is simply mistaken. The existence, factuality, or reality of different kinds of things is not established or disconfirmed in the same way in every case. We might ask, is there a box of crackers in the pantry? And we know how we would go about answering that question. 
But that is a far, far cry from the way we go about answering a question and determining the reality of, say, barometric pressure, quasars, gravitational attraction, elasticity, radioactivity, natural laws, names, grammar, numbers, the university itself that you're now at, past events, categories, future contingencies, laws of thought, political obligations, individual identity over time, causation, memories, dreams, or even love or beauty. In such cases, one does not do anything like walking to the pantry and looking inside for the crackers. There are thousands of existence or factual questions, and they are not at all answered in the same way in each case. Just think of the differences in argumentation and type. I mean, basically what the atheist is saying is that, you know, let's say um, somebody came up and said, well, you know, I believe that something like love exists. And the atheist goes, well, you know, I, I won't believe in, in something called love uh, unless you can tell me what it weighs and tell me uh, what its dimensions in space are and uh, what its atomic makeup is. Once again, it's a category error. They're, they're making a category error. ...evidence used by biologists, grammarians, physicists, mathematicians, lawyers, logicians, mechanics, merchants, and artists. It should be obvious that the type of evidence which one looks for in existence or factual claims will be determined by the field of discussion and especially by the metaphysical nature of the entity mentioned in the claim under question. Dr. Steins remarked that the existence of uh, God is answered, the question of the existence of God is answered in the same way as any other factual question, mistakenly reduces the theistic question to the same level as a box of crackers in the pantry, which we will hereafter call the crackers in the pantry fallacy. <laughs> Secondly, then, I'd like to talk about the presuppositional conflict of worldviews. Dr. Stein has written about the nature of evidence in the theistic debate, and what he has said points to a second philosophical error of significant proportions. In passing, we would note how unclear he is, by the way, in speaking of the evidence which must be used, describing it variously as logic, facts, or reason. Each of these terms is susceptible to a whole host of differing senses, not only in philosophy, but especially in ordinary usage, depending on who's using the terms. I take it he wishes to judge hypotheses in the common sense by test of logical coherence and empirical observation. The problem arises when Dr. Stein elsewhere insists that every claim which someone makes must be treated as a hypothesis which must be tested by such evidence before accepting it. There is to be nothing, he says, which smacks of begging the question or circular reasoning. This, I think, is oversimplified thinking and, again, misleading, what we might call the pretended neutrality fallacy. One can see this by considering the following quotation from Dr. Stein. We discussed the uh, pretended neutrality fallacy um, <clears throat> in the previous episode, and uh, what the atheist will and the naturalist will claim is that he comes to any question he's he claims with uh, with a blank slate. You know, he simply just observes the evidence and he uh, he examines it and he just goes where the evidence leads. And, th and that's his claim. He claims that he's neutral. Well, it's a pretended neutrality because all of us come to the evidence with 
presuppositions. We come with pre-commitments uh, before we examine the evidence. Um, in fact, even the view that I need to come to the evidence with a blank mind and a blank slate and just allow the evidence to take um, me where it leads is a pre-commitment. It is a presupposition. And so um, the, uh, the unbeliever and the atheist uh, is not presuppositionally neutral. Um, he has pre-commitments. He has things that he believes before he examines any sort of evidence for anything whatsoever. The use of logic or reason is the only valid way to examine the truth or falsity of a statement which claims to be factual. That's the end of the quote. One must eventually ask Dr. Stein then how he proves this statement itself. That is, how does he prove that logic or reason is the only way to prove factual statements? He's now on the horns of a real epistemological dilemma. If he says that the statement is proven by logic or reason, then he's engaging in circular reasoning and he's begging the question, which he staunchly forbids. If he says that the statement is proven in some other fashion, then he refutes the statement itself, that logic or reason is the only way to prove things. Now, my point is not to def not to fault Dr. Stein's commitment to logic or reason, but to observe that it actually has the nature of a pre-commitment or a presupposition. It is not something he has proven by empirical experience or logic, but it is rather that by which he proceeds to prove everything else. He is not presuppositionally neutral in his approach to factual questions and disputes. He does not avoid begging crucial questions rather than proving them in what we might call the garden variety, ordinary way. Now this tendency to beg crucial questions is openly exposed by Dr. Stein when the issue becomes the existence of God, because he demands that the theists present him with evidence for the existence of God. Now theists like myself would gladly and readily do so. There is the evidence of the created order itself, testifying to the wisdom, power, plan, and glory of God. One should not miss the testimony of the solar system, the persuasion of the sea, the amazing intricacies of the human body. There's the evidence of history, God's deliverance of his people, the miracles at Passover night in the Red Sea, the visions of Isaiah, the Shekinah glory in the temple, the virgin birth of Jesus, his mighty miracles, his resurrection from the dead. There's the evidence of special revelation, the wonder of the Bible as God's word, unsurpassing its coherence over time and its historical accuracy and its life-renewing power. In short, there is no shortage of empirical indicators or evidences of God's existence, from the thousand stars of the heavens to the 500 witnesses of Christ's resurrection. But Dr. Stein precludes the very possibility of any of this empirical evidence counting as proof of God. And the, the thing that we have to recognize as Christians um, is that, you know, while we as Christians love this evidence, I mean, it bolsters our faith. It encourages us. We love this evidence. I mean, we love the cosmological argument. I mean, we love the ontological argument. We, we love to see, you know, the intricacies of God's um, design when it comes to uh, the structure of living things, when it comes to DNA, uh, when it comes to uh, physics, um, the way that... Um, that uh, 
objects relate to one another in space and the way uh, time and space relate to another uh, uh, using relativity. I mean, these these things intrigue us, and, and for me as a Christian, just demonstrates overwhelmingly the creative power and design and uh, wisdom of God. But the atheist, since he has his pre-commitment to a naturalistic, a not-God worldview, he will simply preclude this because he already has this pre-commitment. And that's why we're saying that he does not approach uh, the evidence from a neutral position. So, you know, I can spend all day talking to uh, an unbeliever uh, or a naturalist about, let's say, the geological rock layers. Um, and for me, as a Christian, that's evidence of Noah's flood. But for the unbeliever, or for the naturalist, he, it simply is an affirmation that of his naturalistic position. Now, he will, he will, he may even argue that there is no God because of the geological layers. And um, a couple years ago, I think it was about two years ago, I wrote an article on presuppositional apologetics at uh, logicalbelief.org, and I um, and I wrote something there that uh, that I'm just going to go ahead and read here. Uh, that might help you understand this a little better. It says here, um, actually, I'm going to start just a little earlier here. It says, in the quest for truth, starting points, worldviews need to be examined before any evidence can be viewed. The reason for this is because everyone will interpret evidence with their presupposed worldview. If the interpretation of evidence is what is used to determine which worldview is true, then the examiner will end up being caught in a vicious circular loop. And I'll give an example here. I wrote, uh, an atheist presupposes that God does not exist. Therefore, special creation or a supernatural creation is not a possibility when he looks at the evidence of the geological layers. The atheist must believe that the geological layers were laid down over massive amounts of time as the universe slowly evolved. An atheist then takes the evidence of the geological layers interpreted by his worldview and says that it is evidence that his worldview is true. But this is a this is vicious circular reasoning. This is the fallacy of begging the question. The uh, atheist is assuming naturalism. He's looking at the geological layers through his naturalistic worldview, and then he's concluding that naturalism is true. But he already had the starting assumption. He's begging the question. Existence. He writes, and now I quote, Supernatural explanations are not allowed in science. The theist is hard put to document his claims to the existence of the supernatural if he is, in effect, forbidden from invoking the supernatural as a part of his explanation. Of course, this is entirely fair as it would be begging the question to use what has to be proved as a part of the explanation. End of quote. In advance, you see, Dr. Stein is committed to disallowing any theistic interpretation of nature, history. By the way, Stein is correct. Uh, that is actually begging the question. He, he's exactly right. But that's because it's a Christian presupposition. He doesn't realize he's doing exactly the same thing. He does exactly the same thing. The question is not on whether ultimate authorities are circular in nature. They all are. Uh, all uh, ultimate presuppositions 
uh, are, are circular in nature because there is nothing higher to prove them by. However, the question is not whether they're circular in nature. The question is, is does that presupposition, for example, does the naturalistic presupposition make sense of the world? Can I justify the laws of logic, um, ethics, or morality, and the uniformity of nature if naturalism is true? No, I can't. I can't account for them if that was true. But if I presuppose biblical Christian supernaturalism, I can now justify the laws of logic. I can justify uniformity in nature. I can justify uh, ethics and morality. So um, that's the uh, that's the actual question. The question is which worldview provides a consistent foundation for the human experience, and which worldview presupposed worldview does not. Or experience. What he seems to overlook is that this is just as much begging the question on his own part as it is on the part of the theist who appeal to such evidence. He is not at all proven by empirical observation and logic his pre-commitment to naturalism. He has assumed it in advance, accepting and rejecting all further factual claims in terms of that controlling and unproven assumption. Now, the theist does the very same thing, don't get me wrong. When certain empirical evidences are put forth as allegedly disproving the existence of God, the theist regiments his commitments in terms of his presuppositions as well. See, just as the naturalist would insist that Christ could not have risen from the dead or that there is a natural explanation yet to be found of how he did rise from the dead, so the supernaturalist insists that the alleged discrepancies in the Bible have an explanation, some yet to be found perhaps, and that the evil of this world has a sufficient reason behind it, known at least to God. Uh, this is what, in the previous episode, we talked about uh, a rescuing device, and that's what Bonson is referring to here, um, is that uh, we, we will all use rescuing devices to uh, save our presupposed worldview from evidence that would appear to be contrary to it. So, you know, for example, let's take, um, and, I, and I gave several examples in the previous episode, so uh, if you're jumping in here, and you don't know this, you can go back and listen to that uh, episode. But um, uh, one of the examples that I gave was that, you know, you could ask the uh, naturalist um, how he uh, jumps the chasm from the irreducible complexity required in order for an organism to be living and non-living matter, just uh, random particles and matter. How, how do you bridge that gap? How do you go from non-life to life, you know, the law of um, uh, abiogenesis. How do you go from uh, non-life does not produce life? So, so how do you bridge that gap? Now, the naturalist, he, he doesn't have an answer for that, but what, what he'll do is he'll just say, well, you know, I may not have an answer for that now, but science will at some point be able to provide this answer. So, he is regimenting his pre-commitment to naturalism, and in fact, he's living by faith. He 
he's uh, living by faith. He's believing that something happened in the past that he has no ability to prove now. And he's also prophesying about the future. He's saying that um, that in the future, you know, we will have an answer for this. You know, I can't give you an answer now, but we will. So not only does he have blind faith about the past, he's now a prophet prophesying about the future. They both have their governing presuppositions by which the facts of experience are interpreted, even as all philosophical systems, all worldviews do. At the most fundamental level of everyone's thinking and beliefs, there are primary convictions about reality, man, the world, knowledge, truth, behavior, and such things. Convictions about which all other experience is organized, interpreted, and applied. Dr. Stein has such presuppositions, and so do I, and so do all of you. And it is these presuppositions which determine what we accept by ordinary reasoning and evidence, for they are assumed in all of our reasoning, even about reasoning itself. And so I come thirdly then to the transcendental proof of God's existence. How then should the difference of opinion between the theist and the atheist be rationally resolved? That was my opening question. We've seen two of Dr. Stein's errors regarding it, the crackers in the pantry fallacy and the pretended neutrality fallacy. In the process of discussing them, we have observed that belief in the existence of God is not tested in any ordinary way like other factual claims. And the reason for that is metaphysically because of the non-natural character of God and epistemologically because of the presuppositional character of commitment for or against his existence. Arguments over conflicting presuppositions between worldviews therefore must be resolved somewhat differently and yet still rationally than conflicts over factual existence claims within a worldview or system of thoughts. When we go to look at the different worldviews that atheists and theists have, I suggest that we can prove the existence of God from the impossibility of the contrary. The transcendental proof for God's existence is that without him, it is impossible to prove anything. The atheist worldview is irrational. And, and that's really the challenge. You know, for any of you that are atheists, if you're listening to this podcast, the question is for you is if you don't believe that God exists, if you start with not God, prove anything. Prove anything at all. And that's the, uh, that's the fundamental question. ...cannot consistently provide the preconditions of intelligible experience, science, logic, or morality. The atheist worldview cannot allow for laws of logic, the uniformity of nature... The ability for the mind to understand the world and moral absolutes. And in that sense, the atheist world view cannot account for our debate tonight. Thank you, Dr. Bonson, for your opening statement. We now turn to you, Dr. Stein. Your 15-minute opening statement, please. What you're going to notice here with uh, Gordon Stein's opening statement <clears throat> is that he really doesn't even address any of Bonson's opening statement hardly at all in fact he goes through all the evidential arguments for god um 
and he, you know, attempts to refute them, strawmanning several of them actually in the process. But um, he goes through and he uh, he approaches Bonson as if he expected Bonson to be an evidentialist, which which means that he didn't even investigate or research Bonson hardly at all before coming to this debate. Um, he likely it doesn't appear to have read anything that he's written uh, unlike Bonson Bonson thoroughly researched Stein he had many quotes from him um, he's he's obviously read up at, but I see this as a common uh, trend among atheism and I don't want to paint with a you know a wide brush um, because you know I, I do believe there are atheists that you know that will read our material but um, obviously Stein didn't do that with Bonson um, because he didn't approach this debate um, from the position that uh, that Bonson starts with. He didn't even really try to address presuppositionalism until, well, as you'll see what happens here, um, it does not go well for Stein, but uh, he, he, just, he just wasn't prepared at all. Um, he wasn't prepared for, uh, for facing a presuppositionalist. Can everybody hear me? I assume so. Well, I will, I will grant uh, Dr. Bonson his expertise uh, on a conditional resolution of the apparent paradox of self-deception, which was his dissertation. I don't know how much more relevant that is to our discussion tonight than mine is, probably Very not relevant. anymore. But uh, I would like to also thank Dr. Bonson for uh, showing us that he really doesn't understand too much about atheism. I will try to straighten them out. This is an important question we're discussing. Perhaps it's the most important question in the whole field of religion. Because if God does not exist, then the Bible can't be the word of God, Jesus can't be the Messiah, and Christianity cannot be true as, long, or as well as other religions. So we, we're dealing with an important issue here. Now, Dr. Bonson repeated for me that the existence of God is a factual question. I, I don't think he would dispute that. I think he misinterpreted what I said when I said that, that we solve factual questions in the same way. I didn't mean exactly the same way. I mean but the use of reason, logic, and evidence. And that is what I'm holding. Now, first let me, let me uh, make clear what atheism is and is not. I think this is a very commonly misunderstood subject. Atheists do not say that, they're, that they can prove that there's no God. They also, an atheist is not someone who denies that there is a God. Rather, an atheist says that he has examined the proofs that are offered by the theist, and he finds them inadequate. Now, this is, frankly, just engaging in linguistic revision. Now, I don't know when this trend started among um, uh, the new atheists or, or modern atheism, but um, atheists... Uh, uh, no longer really take the position uh, that um, they can prove that there is no God. Uh, they have evidence that there is no God, um, which is what atheism actually even means. Atheism means, you know, no God. And so what they've done is they're engaging in linguistic revision, and Stein's doing that here too. Instead of defining um, the atheistic position as the position that says, you know, there is no God, I can prove there is no God. Uh, instead, 
they they just say, well, you know, we can't prove there is no God, but we just find all the theistic arguments inadequate. So we're not going to make a positive argument for our position of not God. Instead, what we're going to do is um, we're simply going to sit back here and we're going to poke at the uh, theistic um, arguments for God, but that's all we'll do. We're not going to make any sort of a positive assertion and um, and statement for uh, or or argument. Uh, they'll make the assertions, I guess, in the statements, but they won't they won't make any positive arguments for God not existing. They they do recognize the inability of of proving a universal negative, but that makes them agnostic. That doesn't make them an atheist. Uh, so what they do is they're trying to hold on to the handle of atheist. Uh, while actually embracing the the definition of agnosticism, um, they just don't know, and uh, they just don't like the theistic proofs. If I were to say that this gentleman in the sitting on the front step could fly by flapping his arms, I would be making a kind of unusual statement, and I, it would be up to me or him to demonstrate that he could fly. If he can't demonstrate it, then we don't believe that he can fly. Now, if he You'll notice uh, Stein, uh, throughout his opening statement here, continually making this category error um, where he uh, reduces the question of God. Once again, the crackers in the, pa- uh, in the pantry fallacy. He's reducing the question of how we would, would answer, uh, does the transcendental, non-contingent, uncreated God uh, exist? He reduces that question to a question of how we would answer, does something exist within time and space itself, uh, within the natural universe? Uh, God created the natural universe, therefore he is not a part of the natural universe, so you can't stick him in a test tube. But he continues to demand that the Christian find some sort of a test tube type experiment um, or some sort of empirical um, natural test to test the supernatural. Um, it's a category error, and he makes it repeatedly. He doesn't demonstrate it right now. That doesn't mean he can't fly. It just means he can't fly right now. Now, so that we do not deny that he can fly because he can't demonstrate it right now, but we say he has not proven his case, and therefore we do not believe that he can fly until he does so, prove so. And this is what an atheist says about the existence of God. He says the case is unproven, not disproven. So an atheist is really someone who is without a belief in God, or who does not believe in a God. It is not someone who denies the existence of a God or who uh, says that one does not exist or can prove that one does not exist. Now, I think uh, I would like to define a God as well. I'm not so sure I like his definition. I'm not going to stick to just Christian God. I'm going to stick to all kinds of God. And I'm going to use the definition which both Father Copleston and Bertrand Russell both agreed on. And <laughs> Here's the thing. Uh, this is this is absolutely. Um, say, he, he's he's basically announcing I'm going to straw man, you know, you know Dr. Bonson. You know I'm not going to stick to his definition of God. I'm not going to argue against his definition of God. Um, I'm instead going to uh, create my own definition, and that's what I'm going to argue against. Um, that's frankly that's just disrespectful. You know I could spend all my time. Um, arguing with a, a Muslim, and I could uh, I could tell him that his God, you know, I believe his definition of God is um, uh, is uh, um, a man that lives on the moon. That's that's Allah, 
and I spent all my time disputing the man living on the moon, and the Muslims looking at me going, that's not what I believe. I don't believe God is a man living on the moon. So uh, it's, it's really, it's actually quite disrespectful in a, in a debate uh, to, to say, well, I'm not going to use your definition of God. I'm, I'm instead going to create my own definition. Now, I don't think it's really a basis of his argument, um, but uh, but Bonson here is actually arguing for the God of the Bible, the triune God of the Bible, and um, and Stein's definition is just uh, you know a a general theistic personal being, um, and you know as a Christian, I would argue against a general theistic personal being. I don't I don't believe in that. Uh, so I would join Stein in arguing against that. So it's it's really it's actually quite disrespectful to come to a debate and to not um, to to basically announce you're going to straw man your opponent. Famous debate. Now this was both sides, the leading exponents of both sides, both managed to agree on the definition of God. So I think it must be at least an adequate one, if not a great one. And this is the definition: a supreme personal being, distinct from the world and creator of the world. Now, before asking for proof of God's existence, we need a, we need this satisfactory definition, and uh, I think I've given one which I will find at least satisfactory. And if Dr. Bonson doesn't agree, we can hear from him. Now, nothing can qualify as evidence for the existence of a God unless we have some idea what we're searching for. That's why we need the definition. Okay, now, but I won't use throughout history, 11 major kinds of evidence or proof have been offered in my, for the existence of God. In my campus visits, I have heard all kinds of other things offered as proof, but they basically fall into those 11 categories with some juggling. And if these 11 proofs do not work out logically or lead to logical self-contradictions, then we can only say that God's existence is not proved, it's unproven, not disproven, as I mentioned before. Now, if, if I um, assert that this gentleman can fly by flapping his arms, as I said, the burden of proof was on him. Supposing I make a more complicated statement, supposing I say that my dog can talk in complete sentences, Okay, well, again, I'm making a kind of unusual statement, and it's up to me to offer the evidence. So I'd better be prepared to do that, or I'd better be prepared to have people not believe what I say. And I'd like a demonstration, either of this gentleman's flying or of my dog talking, if I were the person who was being asked to make a conclusion, before I admitted that such things were possible or existed. Okay, now how easy would it be to show that this gentleman cannot fly or that my dog cannot talk in its complete sentences? As I mentioned before, uh, we get into a real problem when we're trying to show that something cannot happen or that something does not exist. For example, if, if I wanted to prove that unicorns do not exist, I can examine category this room and we can find out that there are definitely no unicorns in this room. That's a small area, but to prove the general non-existence of something like unicorns, we would have to search the entire universe simultaneously, and then we could only say that no unicorns existed at the moment we searched the universe. But You could search the entire universe at the same time 
for all of uh, time, and you would never find God. God in spirit. Now, you would find Jesus Christ in time, but you would not find God. So once again, it's a category error. God is transcendent. He transcends his creation. You know, maybe they were there five minutes before, or if we only searched the whole earth, maybe they were on another planet at the time. I mean, there are all kinds of other possibilities. So you cannot prove that something does not exist. And that's why, as I mentioned before, the definition of an atheist is not someone who thinks he has proven that God does not exist because you cannot. Okay, now of those 11 major proofs, um, I'm going to go over some of them very quickly. They've been 900 years in the formulation, and during this 900 years, this is basically what people have come up with. The first cause argument, also called the cosmological argument, it says that everything must have a cause. Therefore, the universe had a cause, and that cause was God. God was the first or uncaused cause. Um, I'm not sure if he's intentionally doing this, um, but that's not the cosmological argument. Um, I don't know, maybe that's how he's had it represented to him, but the cosmological argument is um, everything that has a beginning has a cause. Not everything has a cause. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. So uh, I'm not sure if this was intentional. Um, he's misrepresenting the cosmological argument. Um so, you know, I don't know. I don't use the cosmological argument. You know, I, I think, you know, as an evidential argument, it's not a bad one. But um, I don't, uh, I don't, once again, I don't personally use it. I'm a presuppositionalist. So, um, but I think he's misrepresenting it. Okay, well, this, is, this leads into a real logical bind for the theist. Because if everything must have had a cause, then God must have had a cause. If God had a cause, then he was not the first or uncaused cause. If God did not have a cause, then not everything must have a cause. If not everything needs a cause, then perhaps the universe is one of those things which doesn't need a cause. So you see that we've gotten into a logical bind there, and that proof basically fails. Now, I'm giving you a real short synopsis of each of these proofs. They can fill an entire book and have. So you have to understand I'm oversimplifying slightly, but I think I'm retaining the logic of it, both the pro and con. The second one is the design argument, also called a teleological argument. It says that the universe is wonderful and exhibits evidence of design or order. Things which show such wonderful design must have had a designer who was even more wonderful, and that designer was God. Well, if the universe is wonderfully designed, surely God is even more wonderfully designed. He must therefore have had a designer even more wonderful than he is. If God did not require a designer, then there's no reason why such a relatively less wonderful thing than the un as the universe needed one. Again, we're into a logical self-contradiction. The argument from life says life cannot originate from the random movement of atoms, yet life exists. Therefore, the existence of a God was necessary to create life. Well, basically, life didn't originate from the random movements of atoms, and no scientist would say so, because there are limits on the chemical composition and physics of atoms and they don't move in any possible way, and chemicals do not combine in any possible way. That's why when you see these one billion to one kind of odds that people have said for life originating, they're... Yeah, I think he's off by uh, orders of magnitude. <laughs> I think the uh, odds are more like one in 10 to the 50th something. 
Um, I, I don't remember for sure, but it's an astronomically high number. Um, yeah, well beyond a billion there, uh, Mr. Stein. Or wet. They haven't considered the possibility that not every reaction can occur. So uh, it's possible to explain the origin of life without a god, and using the principle of parsimony or Occam's razor, I think we are left with the uh, simpler explanation as the one without the god. I'll go into more detail on that later. Then we have the argument from re revealed theology, which seems to be one of Dr. Bronson's favorites. Uh, it says that the Bible says that God exists, and the Bible is the inspired word of God. Therefore, what it says must be true. Therefore, God exists. Well, this is obviously a circular argument. That's simply disrespectful because, once again, that's not an argument Bonson used. And he'll address this in the cross-examination, but that's frankly disrespectful. He he didn't use that argument. Um, uh, and sometimes I, I've even heard people that attack presuppositionalism say that that's the presuppositional argument. No, it's not. Uh, but uh, he's, yeah, he's misrepresenting uh, Bonson here. Uh, begs the question, we're trying to show whether God exists, therefore calling the Bible the word of God is not permitted, because it assumes the existence of the very thing we're trying to prove. Now, if the Bible is not the word of God in this case, then we cannot give any real weight to the fact that it mentions that God exists. It does not become a proof. In fact, to prove God from the Bible is standing things on its head. First, you must prove God. Then you may say, examine whether God wrote the Bible or dictated it or inspired it. But you can't really use the Bible, as Dr. Bonson seems to want to do, as evidence for the existence of God, per se. Then we have the argument for miracles. It says that the existence of miracles requires the presence of a supernatural force, that is, a God. Miracles do occur, therefore there is a supernatural force or God. Again, this is begging the question. It requires that you must believe in the existence of a God first, beforehand, and then you say that there are such things as miracles, which are the acting of a God to create violations of his own laws. So it is not evidence per se. It can serve as supplementary. Once you've had good evidence in another kind of a way for the existence of a God, then you can use miracles as an additional argument. But in and of itself, it doesn't show the existence of a God because it assumes that which is to be proven. I just want to quote you one little thing from Thomas Paine about miracles. If we see an account given of such a miracle by a person who said he saw it, it raises a question in the mind of the very, that is very easily decided, which is, is it more probable that nature should go out of her course or that a man should tell a lie? We have never seen in our time nature go out of her course, but we have good reason to believe that millions of lies... Notice what happens when... Um, a naturalist or an atheist denies the existence of God, he begins to personify um, creation itself. Um, nature is now a she here um, who actually, uh, I guess, uh, determines on the course of nature and, I guess, keeps uh, nature uniform. Uh, so I guess uh, nature itself became personal here. ...have been told in the same time. It is therefore at least millions to one that the reporter of a miracle tells a lie. I think those are good odds. Then we come to the ontological argument, one of the most difficult ones to explain to people. But basically it says God is by definition perfect. A necessary quality of any perfect object is that it exists. If it did not exist, it would not be perfect. 
If perfection requires existence, then God exists, since God is perfect. Now, I don't know if you followed that, but I think this has been pretty well uh, ripped to shreds by philosophers, and I think the problem lies with the, with the trouble, the trouble is with the word exist. In order for something to be perfect, it must first exist. I mean, if, if something did not exist, you wouldn't, the word perfect wouldn't mean anything. So first you must have existence, then possibly you may have perfection. So this, again, is going backwards, and you must have an existing God, then you can decide whether he's perfect. If perfectness is a quality of, of, of a God, then he may be perfect. Wow, is he butchering the ontological argument? Um, when it comes to evidential arguments, uh, the cosmological and ontological are, are two that um, I like, but wow, he's, uh, he's butchering that first one. must exist. Then we have the moral argument. All people have moral values. The existence of these values cannot be explained unless they were implanted in people by a God. Therefore, God exists. Well, the answer to this is that there are simpler ways of explaining the origin of moral values without requiring the existence of a God to implant them in people. Besides, if moral values did come from a God, then all people should have the same moral values, and they don't. People's moral values are the result of an accommodation which they have made with their particular environment and then taught to their children as a survival mechanism. Okay, then we have the wish argument. Without the existence of a God, people would have no reason to live or be good. Therefore, there has to be a God. Most people believe in a God. Therefore, there is a God. This really isn't a proof. It's just a wish. It's like saying it would be nice to have a God, which it would, but, you know, that doesn't have anything to do with whether there is one or not. I would uh, uh, <laughs> I would reject that assertion. I don't think uh, uh, Stein would love if the God of the Bible existed. Now, uh, there's a friend of mine who says that uh, that uh, a lot of uh, professing Christians and uh, people today um, in modern evangelicalism believe in a Santa Claus uh, God, you know, who just gives us everything that we want and is just there pining away, hoping we'll pay attention to him. You know, now maybe that God, you know, uh, Stein would like to have exist, but I don't think he would like it if the God um, that Dr. Bonson here is speaking of um, actually existed. I don't think that would be something that he would really like. Um, finally, we have... No, I'm missing one here. We have the argument from faith. The existence of a God cannot be proven by the use of reason, but only by the use of faith. The use of faith shows that there is a God, therefore God exists. Reason or logic is a proven way of obtaining factual information about the universe. Faith has never been shown to produce true information about the universe because, because faith is believing something is so because you want it to be so without adequate evidence. Therefore, it can't be used to prove the existence. Bingo. Uh, wanting something to be so without adequate evidence. I think he just perfectly described atheism. Um, uh, atheists have blind faith. Atheists believe that um, there was nothing, and then nothing created everything. And they believe that uh, non-life uh, produced life. Wow. Uh, have we ever seen that happen in a test tube? Eh, pretty sure we haven't. Um, blind faith. Absolute blind faith. Um, as I said in my previous uh, presentation and the previous episode, uh, I noted that they believe that fish became philosophers, and a frog actually did turn into a prince. Uh, that is blind faith. There's no doubt about that. Of anything. In addition, 
The additional fact is that faith often gives you the opposite answer to what is given by reason to the same problem. And this also shows that faith does not provide valid answers. Now, the argument from religious experience, many people have claimed to have had a personal experience or encounter with God, therefore he must exist. Now, this is a difficult one to handle because, first of all, I've never had such an experience, but I'm sure people have absolutely honestly reported having had such experiences. But the feeling of having met God must not be confused with the fact of having met him. This is a, a confusion, a semantic confusion, and, and also uh, we cannot use our own feelings as, as if they were valid information about the world. They are feelings that we have inside of us, but you cannot demonstrate them to another person. They cannot be used as an evidence. If everyone had that same experience, like if we all looked around the room and we all agreed that there was a clock over there, then we, we might say that the vision of a clock was a consensual one that everyone agreed on it. Other than that, if you saw a clock and nobody else did or only two or three people did in the room, we would have a bit of a problem. Now, the one thing I want to point out here is that, you know, we as Christians, you know, have experienced God. You know, if God has um, condescended to save me, I have experienced his salvation in my life. And I have. So I have had a subjective experience with God. Now, my contention would be is that that is something that I use more in my evangelism and not necessarily in my apologetic. When I um, make an apologetic for the Christian faith, I appeal to objective truths and arguments, not subjective claims. Um, when I um, include, when I get to the evangelistic part of the gospel, uh, then um, I, by necessity, will include my subjective experience with God and the fact that he has saved me um, he has given me an assurance of my salvation, um, and I have communion and fellowship with him. So, you know, there is that subjective piece to it. But when making uh, a defense of the Christian faith, we need to make sure that we are providing objective uh, reasons for... Uh, for the Christian faith and, and, and our uh, belief uh, in God, the God of the Bible. Pascal's wager is the last of 11 arguments. I hear this a lot on the campuses. It says, since we don't know whether a God exists or not, we have no way of finding out in this life. We have nothing to lose by believing in a God. On the other hand, we have a lot to lose if we do not believe in a God, and therefore later, the later turns out to be one after we're dead. Well, this is only true if, number one, you're right about a God, and secondly, if you have picked the right religion, because you might wind up at the judgment day and be right about a God, but he says, what religion were you? And you say, I was an Islam, believer in Islam, and he said, sorry, Catholicism is the right religion, down you go. <laughs> so, in addition, we might also have, if we have a God who punishes people... Here, here's the thing that's interesting. Um, I would actually join Stein with... Um, ref refuting and um, dismissing Pascal's wager. So, and I and I believe that uh, Bonson would too. 
So why is it part of your debate with Greg Bonson, who doesn't use this, and um, would actually say that it is not a biblical um, way of providing an apologetic? I mean, I addressed this in, in episode one. Uh, I, I mentioned Pascal's wager, and... Um, you know, that's not something that we as presuppositionalists use. So I'm not sure why you would uh, include it in your debate against a presuppositionalist. But once again, he obviously didn't do any research on Bonson before he actually came to the debate. People who live virtuous lives, let's say an atheist who lived virtuous life, did wonderful deeds in the world, but just did not believe in a God. If the God punishes him, then we have an irrational God who's just as likely to punish the believer as the unbeliever. Thank you, Dr. Stein. We will now move to our period of cross-examination. The first cross-examiner will be Dr. Bonson. We'll have an opportunity to cross-examine Dr. Stein. This is where the debates always get interesting. This is my favorite part of any debate, is the cross-examination. If I could please have silence, we would appreciate it. Dr. Stein, do you have any sources that you can give to us very briefly that um, define atheism as one who uh, finds the theistic truths inadequate rather than one who denies the existence of God? Yes, sir. George Smith's book, which you will find for sale in the back of the room upstairs later, called Atheism, the Case Against God, which I think is the finest book ever written on the subject, makes this quite explicit. I happen to have a copy right here. I can quote you the exact words if you'd like well, to see them. that won't be necessary. Okay. Do you have any other sources? Do I have any other sources? Do you have any other sources? Sure. Um, what would they be? Charles Bradlaugh, who uh, I will give them to you right now. If 200 uh, 100 years ago, Charles Bradlaugh made the, the comment in one of in his uh, a plea for atheism, he said... That'll be fine. Okay. Well... Dr. Stein, did you hear Dr. Bonson use the following argument? The Bible says that God exists, and the Bible is the inspired word of God. Therefore, what it says must be true. Therefore, God exists. You did not use that and just assume that that was so because you were quoting from the Bible as if it proved... I didn't ask you what I assumed. I asked you if I used that argument. No, you did not use the argument, but you used the results of the argument. Dr. Stein, you mentioned 11 basic proofs for the existence of God. Did you mention the transcendental proof for the existence of God? No, I didn't mention it by name. I think it is not. You didn't mention it by name because you didn't even know about it. Um, or, I mean, maybe he did, but uh, he obviously... Didn't, ad- didn't address it from the opening statement, and he didn't address it in his prepared statement. So he either did no research or he did a cursory look over it, and he just, he just said, ah, well, that's not even relevant to address. Um, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure what happened there, but uh, he didn't even touch on it. Not a proof. I would not call it a proof. If, as I understand it from what you said. I don't on that point. In other okay. words, you didn't deal with that particular one. Are all factual questions answered in the very same way? No, they are not. They're answered by the use of certain methods, though, that are the same. Reason, logic, and presenting evidence. I heard you mention logical binds and logical self-contradictions in your speech. Mm -hmm. You did say that? 
I said it, I used that phrase, yes. Do you believe there are laws of logic then? Absolutely. Are they universal? They're agreed upon by human beings. They aren't laws that exist out in nature. They are, are they simply conventions then? They're conventions, but they're conventions that are self-verifying. Are they sociological laws or laws of thought? They are laws of thought which are interpreted by men and promulgated by men. Are they material in nature? How can a law be material? It's, <laughs> it's interesting here. Um, Stein is doing the typical thing that I have encountered over and over with atheists is he's, he's violating the law of excluded middle. Uh, what he's doing is um, he's trying to squeeze the laws of logic into some place between uh, a convention uh, created by subjective human beings um, a convention and uh, and universal uh, objective laws. He's trying to squeeze it in there someplace it, between, uh, you know, you either have it's universal or it's not universal, but he's not accepting that it's not universal. He's trying to squeeze it someplace between, well, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's not a universal law, um, but it is a universal law. I mean, he, he's trying to squeeze it in there. It's kind of the same way when I uh, talk about morality with with atheists. Um, often they they don't want to accept that um, that morality and ethics are are purely subjective, but they definitely don't like don't don't want to accept that it's objective. Uh, but they can't really stand on the position that it's subjective, so they try to squeeze it in there. Well. Subjective means not objective, so they're trying to squeeze <laughs> it into some position between between uh, being objective and not objective, and it's not possible. It's not logically possible, uh, and he's doing the same thing here with the uh, the laws of logic on whether they're universal, objective, or not. He's not accepting either position. That's the question I'm going to ask you. Thank you. I would say no. This is where it gets interesting. Dr. Stein, I have an opportunity to cross-examine Dr. Bonson. Dr. Bonson, uh, would you call God material or immaterial? Immaterial. What is something that's immaterial? Something not extended in space. Can you give me an example of anything other than God that's immaterial? Laws of logic. Did you hold that down, please? Are you putting God in the same, in the, as an equivalent thing to the laws of logic? No, only if you think all factual questions are answered in the very same way would you even assume that by thinking there are two immaterial things, they must be identical. No, no I'm, not, I'm not assuming that. I'm just assuming that because the laws of logic are a convention among men, are you saying that God is a convention among men? I don't accept the fact that, law, okay. that claim the laws of logic are conventional. Okay. Uh, is your God omnipotent, omniscient? That, I mean, we, we really need to address that. That is an absurd claim. It is absolutely an absurd claim. In the previous uh, 
cross-examination, he didn't really fully embrace that it's conventional, but now here to argue, to try to say that God's a convention, he actually says the laws of logic are conventional. I, that That's like saying, uh, it, I mean, let's give an example of conventional. It's, it's uh, um, here in the United States, we drive on the right-hand side of the road, but in... Uh, new, or in England or Great Britain, they drive on the left side of the road. That's a convention. So, I mean, if, if the laws of logic are truly conventions, then one society can adopt a different law of logic and another society can adopt a, diff- uh, a, a law that is not that law. And they'll both be fine. But no one can live that way. No one believes the laws of logic are conventional in india they hold people to contradictions just like we do here in the united states just like we do everywhere in the world Um, no astronomer looks into space and goes well you know since the laws of logic are conventional and they only apply maybe to the earth um, when i look out into space a galaxy can both be there and not be there at the same time and place. Um, it's, it's it's an absolutely absurd claim to say that the laws of logic are conventional, but that's what atheism is going to lead you to, to absolute absurdities. Um, I mean, there's no reason to even have a debate if the laws of logic are conventional. I mean, the other guy says, well, you know, I adopt the law of, uh, I adopt the convention that God exists, and you adopt the convention that God does not exist. You know, laws, are, they're conventional, so, eh, you know, whatever, end of debate. There's no reason to debate. But that's not how you do rational interchange. That's not how uh, you come to uh, the truth value of something. And omnibenevolent? Yes. You don't find this a contradiction at all? I do not. Okay, well, we'll show you a little later that it is. The thing that's frustrating about that statement is that if he finds it contradictory, then why doesn't he go ahead and demonstrate that in the cross-examination? Why does he have to do that in a monologue? Why doesn't he just go ahead and demonstrate that in the cross-examination? That's that's the best way to demonstrate that somebody holds to a contradictory position is to uh, to show that in the cross-examination time. Um, if your arguments in favor of the existence of God are shown to be incorrect, will you relinquish your be- belief in God? If my arguments are disproven, yes. will I relinquish my belief in God? If there are no arguments for the existence of God, I wouldn't believe in God. That's not quite answering the question. If someone can show you that there are no arguments, would you relinquish your belief? I'm trying to see what, what's the I basis the for your belief. says it's impossible to show a universal negative. No one can show that there are no arguments for the existence of God, so we can only deal with those that I know of. Okay, if someone showed that all of the ones that you produced were invalid, what would be your position? Well, you'd have to describe further the conditions of this. Uh, rationally speaking, if there is no basis for belief in the existence of God, I would relinquish that belief. Okay. Is God good? Yes, he is. How do you know that? He saved me. He created me. He made the world and he made it good. He sent his son into the world to die for my sins. Many of these evidences are quite convincing to me, but I don't use them outside of the worldview in which they make sense, in which they would be taken as true. 
if you mean is God good in such a way or can I give you evidence that you would accept, that would depend on what your presuppositions are. No, I'm asking if God says something, anything, is it right because what God, anything God does is good because God is good or does it become good just because God said it? I don't know if I said that right. I guess I did. No, I understand the problem, though, roughly stated. What God says to be good is good because it reflects his own character. God is good and is the standard of goodness. That's one of the presuppositions of the Christian worldview. Doesn't it indeed, isn't it indeed a presupposition which is presupposed before there is even any actual data from God? Is this a question about my first opening statement? In a sense it is, because although it isn't directly mentioned in your opening statement, it, it, it has to do with the whole idea of whether there are absolutes outside of God, which is a important issue in this whole debate. It may come up later. I still think we're straining at the limits of uh, debate rules here, but I will answer your question. There are no absolutes outside of God. So in other words, the fact that God is good is something that God told you, and that's why you accept it, rather than knowing it ahead and assuming it as a presupposition which you said a minute ago. No, that's extremely simplistic. God told it to me and he provided evidence of it. But you also said it was a presupposition. That's right. Isn't, well, that, isn't that a contradiction? Oh, no, not at all. There are many things which are presupposed as well as uh, uh, evidenced in this world. For instance, the laws of logic. I would disagree with that, but... Okay, um, well, okay then demonstrate right? it. When we talk about immaterial things, are you also saying that there's a, such a thing as, uh, let's say, ghosts or the soul, which are another example of immaterial things? Would you call them immaterial? I'm trying I, say, I would say that man is a living soul and has an immaterial aspect to his being, yes. Mm -hmm. And how would you approve this? This have to do with the existence of God now? Once again, this has to do with your presuppositions. Um, if you start with, it's the same thing. For example, in um, in Acts, I forget which chapter, um, Paul was speaking to King Agrippa, and King Agrippa was uh, they were um, not impressed with the fact that he was uh, he was saying that Jesus had rose from the dead. And he, and he simply said, why do you find it amazing that God could raise the dead? Um, if, if, if you start with the presupposition that the God of the Bible exists, um, then, and he created the world, then raising the dead is no problem. And in the same way, if you start with the presupposition that the God of the Bible exists and it gives you a rational worldview that's consistent, you can justify all the things that uh, we human beings have to use to even exist in our daily lives. If you start with that, then God himself has revealed that human beings have an immaterial aspect to their nature and to their being, and they have a soul. So that then becomes God's revelation to us becomes the evidence of the fact that there absolutely is an immaterial aspect to our being and we have a soul, but it depends on the presuppositions that you're starting with. So that is what needs to be debated here. Not um, does, um, does a, does the human being have an immaterial uh, aspect to his being called a soul? 
that should not be the discussion of the debate. The discussion of the debate needs to be the presuppositions, the worldview that determines on whether or not that is true. Um, so it, it's really getting off topic here, and it's not even sticking to the uh, the uh, actual question of the debate itself, which is, does God exist? The, the debate was not about, does the soul exist? It has to do with the existence of immaterial things. Well, if there's an immaterial being, God, and if the Bible is his word, then I would say that uh, his revealing the nature of man in the Bible is sufficient proof. And that takes us back logically, as you'll be bound to say, to whether God himself does exist. And that's what we're supposed to be debating. Okay, so you're giving me a circular argument, which uh, is... No, I'm telling you what the debate is about. Well, I know what the debate is about. Yeah. I'm asking for an answer to a question, and I didn't get one. Oh, I'm not was... debating the nature of the soul tonight, but the existence of God. Yes, I believe in the man has a soul. Okay, the only reason I asked about the soul is because this is a simpler immaterial object that most people would hold is also immaterial. Oh, I don't say that it's similar. I mean, that's your claim. Well, simpler, I said, not similar. Okay. Okay. Hey, having concluded our segment of cross-examination, we will now begin final rebuttals for segment number one. Dr. Bonson, I now turn to you for an eight-minute rebuttal. Thank you. Now, Dr. Stein is uh, not into this debate yet tonight. We are uh, debating the nature of, uh, I mean, the existence of God. I specified that I would be speaking in order to avoid logical contradiction of one particular view of God, the Christian view of God, which I personally hold. Dr. Stein says that he will not restrict himself to the Christian conception of God. Well, that's fine. He may not. But uh, all the time he uses on anything that's not the Christian conception of God will be irrelevant. In fact, I will join him in refuting those other conceptions of God. The existence of God that I'm arguing tonight is the Christian one. Secondly, when Dr. Uh, Stein defines an atheist as one who finds the theistic proofs inadequate, that is unproven but not disproven, he's engaging in linguistic revision. He does quote for us, of course, to, um, he said that he could, and I trust that he can, uh, to atheists who likewise define atheism that way. But you see, that it strikes me as similar to a Christian who defines his position as being true at the outset, and therefore it must be true because it's true by definition. He has minimized the task that is before him by simply saying, I'm here to show that the theistic proofs are inadequate. Well, you see, even at that, though, he didn't do his job, even though that was less than what he really should be doing. Because he gave us 11 basic proofs for God, attributing one to me that I didn't use and do not use, and did not assume. He mentioned 11 basic proofs, but did not deal with the one that I gave in my opening presentation. So he has not dealt yet with the argument that is before us this evening. Dr. Stein has mentioned logical binds and logical self-contradictions. He says that he holds that the laws of logic are universal, uh, but however, they are conventional in nature. Uh, that is not at all acceptable philosophically. If the laws of logic are conventional in nature, then you might have different societies that use different laws of logic. It might be appropriate in some society to say both, my car is in the parking lot, and it's not the case that my car is in the parking lot. That is, law, uh, certain societies that have a convention that says, go ahead and contradict yourself. Of course, there are, in a sense, subgroups within our own society 
that might think that way. Thieves have a tendency to say, this is not my wallet, but it's not the case that it's not my wallet. They might engage in contradictions like that, but I don't think any of us would want to accept it. The laws of logic are not conventional or not sociological. I would say the laws of logic have a transcendental necessity about them. They are universal, they are invariant, and they are not material in nature. And if they are not that, then I'd like to know in an atheist universe how it's possible to have laws in the first place, and secondly, how it's possible to justify those laws. The laws of logic, you see, are abstract. As abstract entities, which is the appropriate philosophical term... This is why whenever you have a conversation with an atheist, um, you will, when it comes to uh, any sort of uh, um, absolute truth claims, uh, when it comes to uh, any sort of objective things, uh, any objective things like laws of logic, morality, or uniformity of nature, any of those types of things, they are really going to struggle with those they're going to go back and forth they're going to say that they're they may even say there's just no objective truth um there's you know we can't know anything uh to be a, or or they may say well there is objective truth but uh we can't uh there's no way for us as you know subjective creatures who don't have omniscient knowledge there's no way for us to have any knowledge of anything to be absolutely true. The absurd thing about the statement is that's an absolute claim itself. It's uh, it's just self-refuting, but that's all the atheist is left with. He's just left in a pool. He's drowning in a pool of pure subjectivism. He cannot escape it. See, the the thing that the atheists can't do. So when the so when as as a Christian, when I say, well, I do believe in objective truth, and I believe that God has revealed things to me and to you in such a way that we all know them to be certain. That's the, how we can live our lives. That's why we can function in reality. We can exist. We can get up in the morning and actually pull our pants on and brush our teeth and go to work. We can do that. Because God has revealed to each human being sufficient knowledge of things that they know can know to be objectively true and certain so that they can actually live their lives. And so the unbeliever and the atheist um, is denying God, but yet he still lives his life as if these things are most certainly true and absolutely true, but he can't. He can't justify them in any way. So he's just, he's, he's literally drowning in a pool of pure subjectivism uh, that he can't escape. Um, and he can't tell me as a Christian from his subjective perspective, he can't tell me as a Christian that I, uh, there's no way that God could reveal things to me so that I can know them for certain. He can't say that. Because if he says that there's no way that that's possible, he's saying he's certain that there's no way that that's possible, and it's objectively true and absolutely true that that's not possible. Well, that's what he's denying. He's he's saying so once again he's self-refuting himself. So as a Christian, I have an escape from this pool of subjectivity. Um, God has rescued my thinking. Has uh, as it says, 
be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Your mind becomes renewed, and God gives you the objective grounding for everything that you believed before you were a Christian, but yet you couldn't objectively ground it. But now you can because God has changed your mind. Um, and so that's that's really what uh, Stein is. He's just uh, he's doggy, doggy paddling around a pool of subjectivism. Not spiritual entities, as Dr. Stein is speaking of, as abstract entities, that is to say, non-individual or universal in character, they are not materialistic. As universal, they are not experienced to be true. There may be experiences whereby the laws of logic are used, but what? no one has universal experience. No one has tried every possible uh, instance of the law of logic. As invariant, they don't fit into what uh, most materialists would tell us about the constantly changing nature of the world. And so you see, we have a real problem on our hands. Dr. Stein wants to use the laws of logic tonight. I maintain in so doing, he's borrowing my worldview. For you see, within the theistic worldview, laws of logic make sense. Within the theistic worldview, there can be abstract, universal, invariant entities, such as the laws of logic. Within the theistic worldview, you cannot contradict yourself because to so do, you engage in the nature of lying, and that's contrary to the character of God as we perceive it. And so the laws of logic are something that Dr. Stein's going to have to explain as an atheist or else relinquish using them. The transcendental argument for the existence of God, then, which Dr. Stein has yet to touch, and which I don't believe he can surmount, is that without the existence of God, it's impossible to prove anything. And that's because in the atheistic world, you cannot justify and cannot account for laws in general. Laws of thought in particular, laws of nature, cannot account for the human mind and the fact that it's more than electrochemical complexes and events and cannot give us moral absolutes. That is to say, in the atheist conception of the world, there's really no reason to debate, because in the end, as Dr. Stein has said, all these laws are conventional. All these laws are not really law-like in their nature. They're just, well, if you're an atheist and a materialist, you'd have to say they're just something that happens inside the brain. But you see, what happens inside your brain is not the same as what happens inside my brain, and so what happens inside of your brain is not a law. It doesn't uh, necessarily correspond to what happens in mind. In fact, it can't be identical with what is inside of my mind or brain because we don't have the same brains. If the laws of logic come down to being materialistic entities, then they no longer have their law-like character. This really comes down to, I think, uh, as Douglas Wilson's example in his debate with Christopher Hitchens, where <clears throat> since the atheist has, has eliminated... Um, the immaterial world, and all, all is left is the material world. Then, um, thoughts, uh, are uh, truth, uh, what uh, moral claims, all of those things are just the result of um, you know molecules bouncing off one another. So, um, w what the atheist has reduced um, moral claims or or any claims of truth is he's reduced it to. Uh, to the same thing as as a fizz in a in a can of Pepsi or Dr Pepper, you know. Douglas Wilson gave the example. You know, for the atheist, you know, 
if you're if you're looking up, uh, you know, there's a room full of people, and there's these two guys that are going to be debating. And uh, for the atheist, just there's one of them is a can of Pepsi, and the other is a can of Dr Pepper. And you just shake them up, pop the tops, and you know, one of them fizzes truth, and one of them because uh, they obviously don't agree with each other. So so one of them's fizzing, I guess, uh, not truth. Um, but so how, how if if all we're made up of is just uh, material and our brains are just the result of chemical processes, how does that produce truth? How does that produce good and bad? I mean, I don't look at the can of Pepsi fizzing over there and I go, oh, well, that's that's some bad fizz there. That's morally repugnant fizz. And the Dr. Pepper over there, I go, wow, that's that's commendable. That's that's some good fizz there. Um, I guess it just comes down to whether you like Pepsi or whether you like Dr. Pepper. But I guess that's uh, that's all we're left with. If they are only social conventions, then, of course, what we might do tonight to win the debate is just define a new set of laws. And we'll say all those who want the convention that says atheism must be true or theism must be true. And we have the following laws, which we conventionally adopt to prove it. You see, we'll be satisfied. But no one is satisfied. That's not a rational procedure to follow. The laws of logic cannot be avoided. The laws of logic cannot be accounted for in the materialistic universe. Therefore, the laws of logic are one of many evidences that without God, you can't prove anything at all. Thank you, Dr. Bonson. Dr. Stein, your eight-minute rebuttal, please. Okay, I'll now um, touch on transcendental evidence, the existence of God, which is, uh, I think, the only time I could really do such is in my rebuttal. <clears throat> but first, I'd like to, to do one more important thing. Rather than asking, what is the cause of the universe, we must first ask, does the universe require a causal explanation? Rather than asking, what is responsible for design in nature, we must ask, does nature exhibit design? What the world is this guy doing? Has he even heard Bonson's uh, arguments? He's he's right now using the teleological and the cosmological argument. Now, granted, most of the theists that he's probably encountered have used these, but Bonson hasn't used any of these arguments. And he's this far into the debate, and he's he's just reading a pre-canned rebuttal. Uh, I. Wow. God is given as a solution to a metaphysical problem, but no consideration is given to whether such a problem exists in the first place. But God is not an explanation for anything. For example, if you say, if I ask you, how did the universe come? And you say, God created it. That doesn't answer the question. The question is, how did God create it? And I defy any theist to explain how God created it. I mean, I can't even hardly follow the logic of this of this argument here. So his argument is if um, uh, if. OK, so let's say my my dad, he does some woodworking. So uh, I see uh, this this really nice shelf, you know, up on the wall that that he said he made. Um, so unless I know actually the process he went through and how he did it. Um, I, I don't have, I have no way of knowing if he actually did it or not. I mean, I just, I, I, I'm having a tough time actually following, uh, the logic of this. So, so we, so we can't know if God created the universe unless we know exactly how he created the universe. 
Um, wow, I, I'm not even sure even how to uh, even address that. I just it's wow. Basically, what you're saying is that an unknowable being is responsible for a given phenomenon which he caused through unknowable means. And that's not an explanation, but rather a concession that the phenomenon is totally inexplicable. Now, about the laws of science. Um, that's really his claim that uh, God is an unknowable being. Um, we have his word. Uh, he's revealed it, and he's revealed actually quite a bit about himself. Um, um, I believe that um, I know who God is and have a relationship with him. So I'm not uh, I'm not really sure where you're going here. Science, an atheist world. First of all, I don't think that Dr. Bonson understands what a scientific law is. A scientific law is an observation that's made over and over and over again. The law of gravitation. We drop objects all over the world in different situations, and we always observe that they fall to the earth. So eventually we make a statistical statement that objects are likely, almost 100% likely, to fall to the Earth if they're not accelerating in the opposite direction. Okay? In other words, a rocket doesn't fall to the Earth immediately, but eventually will if it doesn't escape the gravity of the Earth. So these scientific laws are merely consensuses based on thousands and hundreds of thousands of observations. The laws of logic are also consensuses based on observations. The fact that they can predict something correctly shows us that we're on the right track, that we're corresponding to reality in some way. If I can plug in a formula and show exactly where a cannonball is going to land and predict exactly where it will strike, then my mathematics is reflecting something valid about the behavior of cannonballs that are fired on this earth. Otherwise, I wouldn't have, have picked the exact spot. The mathematics is basically logic, again, used in the same way by consensus of tested things that are self-verifying. I'm not explaining it as well as I could, but that's basically what I'm saying. An, an atheist yep. universe then goes on the basis of the fact that matter has certain intrinsic behavior patterns. Electrons repel each other because they're both negatively charged. Protons repel each other. An electron and a proton attract each other. The opposite poles of a magnet do that. That's an inherent property of, a, of matter. That is what produces the regularity in the universe. If there were no regularity, then there would be no science possible because you couldn't predict anything. Matter wouldn't behave the same the second time as it did the first time or the third or the fourth. So the, the, the lack of having a God is in no way detrimental to logic and to having laws in an atheist universe. In fact, if we had a God, we could very easily have an irrational God who did things capriciously so that if, if, uh, if I threw a ball, one, one time I threw it, it would go up and the next time down and, you know, crash straight down and soar right up. That would be just as much evidence for God as regularly behaving. Wow, he is really just proving the transcendental argument right here. Um, nature doesn't act that way, right? So it does prove that the God of the universe is not capricious. He is not... Um, uh, a deceiver. He's not. Um, he's he's immutable. He's unchanging. He's consistent. Uh, he's truthful. Um, yeah. So you're saying that if a world did act irrationally, it would prove that the god um, of that world was capricious and irrational. Okay. Um, I think you're kind of proving the transcendental argument uh, here, um, unwittingly, I believe.
and ball or object drop. I mean, we could have a God who, who makes the rules and changes them from time to time, or we could have one that but makes things doesn't. the same, or we could have a universe that just behaves that way normally. Now, um, to ask what caused the universe, although we didn't get into this exact thing, I'm trying to show you that it's to ask an absurd question in the first place, to give God as the answer. First of all, I mentioned it doesn't explain anything, but secondly, before something can act as a cause, it must first exist. That is, it must be a part of the universe. And the universe sets the foundation for a causal explanation, but it cannot itself require a causal explanation. I don't know if that's clear. If I say, every human being had a mother, that's, that's a valid question. But I, if I ask, who was the mother of the human race, that is a non-valid question because the human race didn't have a mother. I can ask what was the cause of this planet exploding, but to ask what was the cause of yeah, the universe is to ask an invalid question. And to offer the answer as God is to offer an invalid answer to an invalid question. We haven't gotten into morality. I think I'm going to leave that for the second half. If Dr. Bonson doesn't raise it, I will. He makes an awful lot of statements that are basically feelings. He felt God entered his life. He felt that this happened. He felt that Jesus was resurrected. Uh, if, he's, if, he, if he were held to the historian's standard, especially the standard required when a miracle is done, as David Hume said, when a miraculous or very unlikely event, such as the resurrection, although Hume didn't use that exact analogy, that exact example, occurs, we must demand an extraordinary amount of proof if I say that the sun is going to rise tomorrow, we don't need too much proof because it's been rising every day. If I say the sun is not going to rise tomorrow, then we need an extraordinary amount of evidence before someone will take that seriously because it's an unusual event. Okay? Now, he has not held up the historian's standard to a lot of the things he's accepting from the Bible as evidence for God. And I think that if he did so, he would soon see that those evidences dried up. Now, to get to transcendental evidence, finally... The statement that if God did not exist, we couldn't prove anything, and that logic and, and, and uh, scientific laws would be invalid is absolute nonsense, and I think I've demonstrated part of that. He says that laws of logic are the same everywhere. This is not true, although they are mostly the same. And I wonder if he's ever heard of a Zen cone. And the answer to a Zen cone is something which, like, you know, what is the sound of one hand clapping is the most famous Zen cone. The answer to that kind of a question is, is, is in a different type of logic in a sense, or it's extra-logical, if you want to call it that. But I do think that most logic, as we accept it in the, in, the, in the Western world and most of the Eastern world, is basis of agreement on people that reflects something about the universe. The idea that, that transcendental evidence for the existence of God is that the, the impossibility of the opposite, that the world view would not be rational if it were atheistic is total nonsense. And I've demonstrated to you that it depends on the inherent properties of matter. If matter has the properties where it behaves regularly, then we have order in the universe and we have a logical, rational universe without a God. The God issue is not... How do you know, Mr. Stein, that the properties of matter will continue tomorrow the way they have today, in even the next moment? How do you know that? Can you justify that without begging the question. I, I know right now you're assuming it and you're actually saying that it will, uh, the properties of matter will continue that way 
Um, but and, and you believe it, but can you justify it without begging the question? That is the question. Germain, if matter behaves in a regular way, and, and I would hold that the properties of matter as demonstrated over and over again are regular, and it's an inherent property of matter. So I think that the transcendental evidence statement can be dismissed as mere wishful thinking coupled with misinformation about what scientific laws are and what atheists would hold. In fact, most scientists, in fact, science itself is atheistic. Science is not allowed to use a supernatural explanation for anything. And there's a very good reason for that. If, if your experiment came out one way, you could say God did it. If it came out the opposite way, you could say God did that. You would never make any progress in explaining anything in science. And so the agree upon consensus for rules of science is that naturalistic explanations only are asked for and allowed. Hey, we have concluded segment number one of this evening's debate. We will now enter segment number two of this evening's debate. Dr. Stein will open segment number two with a 10-minute opening statement. He will if he can find his notes. Uh, Now, it would, be, it would be logically wrong to say that if all of the proofs fail for the existence of God, that one is justified in saying that there is no God. That's, there's a uh, logical fallacy, argumentum ad ignorantum, or something like that, to say that you accept something just because all the evidence the contrary fails. However, we have two other factors here that we must consider. One of them is the fact that 900 years have passed since Anselm first postulated the ontological proof and, and Thomas Aquinas in 1200 or so. So we have a long period of time which all these proofs that are being professed fail. That's some evidence about probability of their... Um, once again, he's dealing with arguments that Bonson is not using, um, and he's uh, dealing with the probable nature of uh, whether you know, a good argument will come along that proves the existence of God. Once again, he is not addressing the transcendental argument. Um, he is basically, I think what were his words, it's um, it's just ridiculous, I think was the word that he used. Um, but he did not provide any sort of proof that you can prove something uh, with the not God position. Um, and he hasn't demonstrated that. So uh, what we're going to do is um, I think this is probably a good place to go ahead. Uh, our <laughs> second episode is approaching uh, the two-hour mark, and uh, we don't want to just uh, keep dragging this on. Uh, hopefully we can um, get this uh, knocked out in two episodes. Um, we're almost at the halfway point um, in the debate, um, there's going to be another uh, series of some cross-examinations, which are very helpful. And, um, and so uh, we, will, uh, we will go through those in, um, in the uh, next episode. So uh, I want to thank you guys for uh, joining us. And um, uh, you guys have a great Sunday tomorrow, Lord's Day. And uh, God bless. Just will not inherit God's kingdom. And through Adam's offense.